G'day everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Australian Property Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Christie David, and run a mortgage broking business called Atelier Wealth. But the reason that we're here is because we like to bring guests in who are what I call best in breed. So people that live, eat, breathe, sleep property. And today's guest, I'm going to say goes one step above that. And I'm almost going to call him podcasting royalty when it comes to the property space. Because if you've been listening to property investment podcasts, you'll know that there's a name that comes with the origins in this space. And that's Ben Kingsley from Empower Wealth, the property couch. G'day, Ben. How you doing? G'day, Aaron. How are you, mate? I'm fantastic. Thanks. You're a modest guy and you're going to blush, mate. But honestly, the podcast that you guys put out, uh, yourself and Bryce, really uh, set the standard. You were one of the first in this space as well. And I personally got so much information from your podcast. It's truly inspired what, what I do today. So I want to say thank you very much. And you must get a real kick out of that when you look back on your journey and going, I obviously took a life on its own. And now it's always 470 episodes later and it's still going great. <laughs> well, obviously, you're very kind to say that. And, and yes, you know, like our view is, you know, we love to educate and guide people and we believe in abundance. We've got, you know, sort of abundant mindsets and there's so many people that need help in so many ways. And ultimately, there's great ways in which you go about it, obviously, which is, you know, businesses like yourselves and hopefully businesses like ours who do that sort of work. But there are other people who put a self-interest above the interests of those that they serve. And so being able to put the sort of educational content out there for people to digest and, and consider whether it makes sense to them and then to hopefully act on that is is why we do it. So now we do get a great kick out of out of doing our weekly show. No, beautiful. I love it. Keep at it. It's uh, honestly clients, we tell them, we say, jump on, check it out. And uh, that's what we want. We see you want to see the the bar get raised. You want to see good quality, you know, partners out there. You want to see education being the first and foremost, like you like you mentioned. But we're also happy to see other other each other's success as well. Yeah, I think that that's right. There's again, there's a, a huge amount of people that need to be helped, um, whether it be money management, whether it be their finances and getting their strategy and structure right, and then ultimately, you know, whether it's also about the asset selection that fits into their, you know, to the strategy that they're trying to develop for themselves. So, yeah, we're we're a big believer in planning to become what you plan to become, and and ultimately, that's the sort of messaging that we put out there. But most of the work we have to do is really about convincing people that. That there is opportunity and potential for them um, and working on you know that mindset and changing you know any of those sort of money habits and behaviors and their money psychology that they may have grown up with to think that it's not available for them when ultimately every household across australia earns enough money over their working life even at an average salary to be able to you know hopefully put some of that away and in the way in which you sequence um, the order of things that you do you should have every chance to also be able to build up a comfortable retirement. So I think from that point of view, if that message gets across, then, then we're doing our job. No, I love it. I love it. So it's what I like to call the three P's at the start. So be about yourself personally, professionally, and your property journey as well, if you can indulge us. Yeah, so personally married with uh, two boys, 13 and 11, Jack and Harry, um, a beautiful wife who basically does most of the running of the house. Uh, I spend a lot of my time in terms of uh, working on you know the passions that I have around property and helping other people, so I'm very grateful for that. Uh, professionally, um, yeah. So uh, way back in 2004, I set up a company called Integrated Pathways um, with a vision of being able to bring a holistic advisory firm together. Uh, we, you know, I started off as a broker, mortgage broker, did my apprenticeship with uh, with Mortgage Choice, uh, and then in two, 2007. Um, we set the, the practice up called Empower Wealth, 
um, and that's the whole of wealth advisory firm that uh, that I founded back in 2007. And, and here we are today with um, lots of staff, um, with people all all across Australia and and thousands of clients that we serve. Um, there, they're sort of. And what was the last one? Uh, uh, your, in your property journey, I mean, it's, it's oh, been, the property journey, of course, well, which has been great. Uh, yeah, so um, started investing in property uh, very early on. So I think I was around 21 or 22 at the time. Um, bought the house across the road from mum and dad, didn't know much better, um, but knew that obviously property was an interest for me and, and at the time it was going to be a place that I lived in for a while and then work took me in a state, so I lived outside of Melbourne for over um, well, probably about 12 or 13 years, both in Queensland, I had a great job up in Hamilton Island, um, and then also back in uh, in Sydney where I was working in the tourism sector for Hamilton Island and Voyages Hotels and Resorts. Um, that sort of then led me into, uh, you know, building out on that property journey. Um, we bought a property in Sydney at the time. That's when I was getting serious with Jane um, and we were starting off on that journey. And that's also where a sort of critical element occurred. So I was a mad, voracious reader of all of the books and magazines and going to all of the seminars and workshops, trying to distill the fact from fiction. Um, and usually, you know, 70, 80% of the stuff they tell you is actually pretty uh, true and, and real, but it's just that last 30% that sort of steers people in different directions that, um, that you're trying to work out where that value is. And, and part of the journey that I've been on is about really limiting the mistakes that I make and that we make um, when we invest. And so, you know, I've been really fortunate. There's sort of two main ones that, that probably uh, occurred during our portfolio. I mean, I've never regretted any of the properties we bought. They've all performed very well. But um, if I, you know, go back to the original advice I got about an offset account, um, I didn't get that advice about its value uh, when you're living in a property and you can turn it into an investment property. So here I am thinking I'm great in paying and slamming down that debt. Um, so that would have been nice to have had some of that knowledge uh, back in the day. And we're going back, you know, 20 plus years ago now. Um, and then the other one was, yeah, I sold um, my property in Bandura. Um, so I've, I've spoken about this publicly before, but so yeah. far, it's probably cost me about uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in capital appreciation. Yeah. Uh, I bought that property for one hundred and twenty thousand dollars and and sold it. I think for one hundred and sixty five thousand. About three or four years later, to buy into the Sydney market, what I needed to do was basically just renovate it, release the equity, and I'd have both the you know the Bundura property at the time, and I've got a you know the asset in in Sydney has done it incredibly well. It's a two bedroom semi um, in Alexandria. I paid you know sort of three hundred and Ninety-five thousand dollars for it, I think, in two thousand and four, and it's probably worth about one point eight million now, mm -hmm. uh, just as a guide. And then, then we've just been going on that journey. So, once we then got serious about our planning and and started to think about kids and organising and cash flows, we set a target to to achieve one hundred and twenty thousand dollars passive income by the age of fifty. Um, and uh, within sort of ten years of that, I adjusted that target up to two hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, by the age of 50 as um, obviously I didn't anticipate earning a higher income that I was earning in terms of the models that I built originally yeah and so we've been able to adjust that and and yes um you know I'm now 53 and I've been able to achieve that dream and and now you know we look at life in sort of seven grades of financial well-being I've achieved financial peace I don't have to worry about money anymore and, and now it's about financial contribution so we're looking at ways in which you know 
we pay it forward and, and sort of do all the work that we do. I love it. And that almost ties right back into the start where you talk about that abundance mindset. Sometimes I think clients will sell themselves a bit short. I'm going to say clients, I'm talking about a lot of Australians, for example. Yeah. If I just get to the 100K, I'm like, well, I think you're actually capable of getting to 200, even 300. And you may be guilty in a very pleasant way going, I think we can see a bigger future for yourself than you can in your own eyes and going, why don't you have that ability to, to put your foot down and think bigger? And is what's the psychology that you think sits behind that, Ben? Well, I think, you know, obviously there are a lot of limiting beliefs in some households in terms of, you know, whether people feel like that they're worthy or they earned it or whatever that may look like. So there's a lot of psychology going on there, you know, in terms of those sorts of things. Um, but I also think, um, you know, as you grow and mature, maybe in your younger years, there's a group of people that, that really do aspire to be quite rich. Um, but my view is, as I've evolved is I just wanted to make sure. So I grew up in a household where money was always argued about. So I always used to say to myself, you know, mum, mum was definitely looking after the two boys. Dad worked three jobs for 37 years to give us the amazing sort of upbringing that we had and to also now have the, you know, their dream property up on the Murray River. And, and, but I always used to, you know, that there was always that clash between, you know, mum needing money to make sure that we had, you know, the right clothing or anything like that. And dad was always, you know, focusing on paying down debt or investing that money. So he could also retire early. Uh, retiring at 55 so they can move up to their property. So I just thought, look, if we can get to a financial position where I, I, I've made sure that we've planned for the kids' school fees and we've planned for the things we need, the two cars, um, being able to have, you know, really nice experiences and nice holidays and those types of things because I'm passionate about travel. That's what got me into the tourism industry in the first place. So I'll, I'll, I'll go anywhere for an experience uh, and a cultural aspect of that. So I think from that point of view, I'm, I'm comfortable with where that sits. But as you as you grow older, you, you know, it is about understanding that, you know, having X number of million dollars in the bank isn't necessarily going to make you happier. Um, it's about what those experiences and what you're able to do, you know, with that as well. But, uh, but I, I do want people to aspire to knowing that if they, you know, if they do have the delayed gratification, that there is definitely some reward at the end of that story. But I'm not sure that reward is about, you know, someone who's sitting here saying, I've got the most property, so I win. Um, I don't think that ever, you know, sort of does any value to their own personal internal um, sort of value system, as well as I don't think it adds much value to the community in terms of, you know, uh, you know, you learn a lot from cultures that you experience as about taking as much as you need yeah. and sort of getting that sort of balance right. So I, I do, I do love business and I love, you know, growing things and, and creating new products and, and that type of thing. So I get a lot of joy out of out of those sort of creations, you know, a new platform that we're building and things like that. But yeah, I'm I'm not so much wedded to um, you know, what the bank account says in terms of, you know, what what my net worth is these days. Um, I'm more interested in terms of how I can add value to uh, you know and have a meaningful life. I love it. I love this. I love the sentiment. Even if you look at inside your own business and you and I know around mortgage broking, it's that's it's not a, it hasn't Shown, I mean, sixty percent of our industry are solo operators, for example, right? So, even that that limiting mindset around abundance and growing your own business, and you look on, you look at the the wealth effect that you know, Empower Wealth has done, even for its own team members in their own lives, and the beneficiaries of their children. For example, the cascading effect that that has, um, that in itself is a is a huge testament to what you guys have built in in, in a short period of time, relatively as well. 
Yeah, I really love what you're saying there, and and you know that. So you know when you're when you're an owner of a business and you're growing, you know, a business, or whether you're advising customers like you and I do, Aaron, in terms of taking them on that journey, there's a there's a real humility in the sense that the the responsibility that they're putting in you in helping them problem solve or them reaching their goals. So you're right. You know, we've got um, in the next couple of weeks, we've got two of our staff members getting married. Um, we've got babies on the way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I take that really personally around making sure that there's gainful employment for them, that they can be the best version of themselves and continue to, to serve and problem solve for customers. And so that's that beautiful perpetual wheel that gets created off that, 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 you know, you are making a contribution. It's the same, it's the same thing when, you know, when I finished in the tourism industry, I was a little bit unsure about what I wanted to do. And, and so I, the first uh, business um, case that I developed was actually a coffee business in China. Um, you know, this is back in 2004 and, and basically this before Gloria Jeans and all of those sort of Starbucks and all that type of stuff. And so there was half a million expats in Beijing and Shanghai. And I thought, wow, this is great. I can go and do these coffee carts up there. Point of sale was just being a thing. So this is how old I am. You know, there wasn't, the iPhone wasn't released yet. And so just, you know, remote point of sale. So we could have these baristas and they could make really good coffee for all of the Europeans and Australians and all doing business in those two centers. And then I read a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And yeah. obviously, you know, part of the big message in that book is you've got to be, you know, those people that turn great businesses, you've got to be passionate about what you do. Well, I hate coffee. I don't like the flavour. I don't like the – so here I am thinking, oh, what a great business idea. And I was looking at it from a profit-making point of view as opposed to, you know, whether I'd get great joy out of it. And so ultimately I said, well, I can't do that. So what do you like doing? Well, I do like building things and I like helping people. So um, that and, – and, and obviously at the time I was very deep in sort of my 10,000 hours of knowledge building around property investing. So mm. from that point of view I pulled all those things together and I thought well, I could – I could really get up every day enjoying what I do to be able to provide that. And so, you know, that's ultimately what I did. And the kudos to you guys. And I guess you take that knowledge yourself and, and Bryce and you, you put that into a book and and the book again, just, I mean, it has the ability to reach more people and to get into more, to more households as well and have that discussion around property investing. The next book, which we talk, uh, which you call Make Money Simple Again, um, take me through the title of that because it's something that strikes me as um, – well, I'm sure the word is, but why simple? Because people go, hang on, money comes in and out. Like, how do we make this more simple? Is Have we overcomplicated this or where is the complication coming from? Yeah, so there, there, there is lots of nuances in terms of true money management and, and in terms of when you're forecasting tax impacts and you're looking at compounding, you know, returns over 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So th there are a lot of nuances and tax treatments associated with that landing the plane with super. So... A lot of the research does say that people do get overwhelmed by managing money. Now, you would think is it, it is as simple as money in, money out. Um, but in terms of forecasting money and then understanding that when people do do classic budgets, what actually happens in a classic budget is you average that over a 12-month period. Now, if we average out what we're going to spend over a 12-month period and we work that down to a monthly rate, and then all of a sudden on in February we have our car insurance our rego, our house and contents insurance, all in that one month, those classic budgets just get blown out of the water. Yeah. And then people don't really then know how to do, you know, uh, divide the, the 10, 10 twelfths of the remainder of the year to adjust for that money. And it's going to, you know, ultimately over that 12-month period, that budget is going to, 
you know, so, uh, level itself out from a cash flow perspective over that time. So there hasn't really been, you know, strong adoption um, right across the country around budgeting uh, generally. And so obviously the title um, was inspired by um, Noel Whitaker's great book in terms of making money simple. I think make money simple. I think was the was the ultimate, um, you know, book which I read. I think yeah. when I was about sixteen years of age and. So that was that was the inspiration um, for Bryce and I to sort of give it that title. But effectively, yeah, I mean, the story that we tell in the book, it's a manual for, for managing a, a cash flow system that we run called Money Smarts. And, and, you know, it's a rules-based system. And the idea is because people don't like, you know, basically doing their, their bookkeeping uh, in their household, the idea is it's a very powerful system, but it only needs 10 minutes a month to actually reconcile rather than sort of tracking every dollar that you spend and, and the like. So um, it's definitely a passion of mine um, mm-hmm. to try and, you know, like you can't create wealth uh, by saving your way to retirement. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to create wealth through trapping surplus and then putting that money to work. And so that's, um, you know, that's the foundation. So it's almost the prequel originally to the armchair guide in terms of then how you obviously use sensible leverage to be able to get into the property space and accelerate that cash on cash return. I love it. And I guess at, sitting under the Empower Wealth banner, you've got mortgage broking, you've got financial planning, you've got the buyer's agency, you've got the tax advisory side. So the beauty is you get this complete view of the client, for example, where probably when they're going to different professionals, when we probably say this time and time again, uh, where they're getting conflicting information or misinformation about what to do next or what's the right structure, for example, or strategy. And and then it's the conflict within the team and who's clipping the ticket, for example, and oh, we've got that in-house and you have a little bit of that within the team versus the client being smack bang in the middle of, I guess, Empower Wealth's philosophy and going, right, we're all on the same page and we're all very much aligned from a wealth creation of blueprints are here for the client. It's, 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 a, it's I mean, obviously a very smart model, but very client-centric model at the same time, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, most of what we've built has been off mine and Jane's experience as we've gone on the journey. So the, the simulator and the property planning services that we use were were basically created from, you know, the, the decisions that I wanted to optimise and make every post a winner. But if you come back to the fundamentals, yeah, when I was doing those seminars and, you know, going to those events and those expos when I was in my early 20s and so forth, I would just get conflicted information and I wouldn't know who to trust or which advice was right. And so... My view is once I had sort of that 10 years of practical hands-on experience myself, in terms of as I started to grow the advisory business, it was always going to be a fee-for-service business. So, you know, it was always the customer was very much going to know what uh, they were up for in terms of the payment. Obviously, with the brokerage business, you can't charge an upfront fee. Um, So, you know, that's a free service to, to the borrower. But it was always based on this idea that if everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet, And everyone understands that, yes, we have a set of rules and investment philosophies that no one can move outside of. Um, And we have an investment committee that we, you know, discuss those parameters and what we what we do. So, you know, that comes back to that whole story. I mean, people are entrusting us, you know, as effectively their accountability partners. And there's a lot of humility and responsibility in terms of looking after other people's money. It's all right when you're your own. It's all right when you can sit back and say, I did this and I did that and look at me and I've, you know, I made that mistake, but I recovered it here. When you're actually playing with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of other people's money, there is a whole different scale of responsibility that comes with that. And so, 
you know, I wanted to make sure that through the advisory business and that whole of wealth is you can get to see, you know, you're working on the core, which is basically what lifestyle by design and what sort of, um, you know, value set is the customer looking to achieve. And then we build on that. And, and money is just a mechanism by which that can, you know, can obviously be realised. Yeah, I love it. It's great philosophy. Uh, and then I guess building off top of on top of that, for example, I talk about talent stacking. I think you guys um, tech stacked uh, very well. So you've got money smarts, you've got more as well. So I guess this is, I guess, keep uh, keep pushing uh, your client offering and offering more. I guess high tech, high touch. So take us through how does more work and what is that? What is yeah, that? Sure, sure. Um, I'll start with the the foundation, and the foundation is. You know, again, I went looking. I love, um, you know, Jan and Ian Summers, and I love their original sort of Summersoft software. And you know, that's I think it came delivered on a on a yeah, it was CD ROM. Well, yeah, it was a CD ROM at the time. And so, you know, I use that personally for forever. And you know, in those earlier years, in terms of doing feasibility assessments on property and so forth, and still one of the best in terms of summarizes that beautifully. But I then sort of said, well, actually. I've got, I've got several properties now and I've got offset balances and I've got different money rolling through the household. And, and so I need to make sure that, that I'm again thinking about the medium, short, longer term cash flow impacts of that. And am I getting a true reading? And so back in the day, and, and this is, you know, no, no discredit to the wonderful work that, uh, the summers, uh, you know, Ian and Jan did with their, with their tool, but it was like, it wasn't, you know, wasn't uh, fit for purpose in terms of, for me to build out a property portfolio. So from the ground up, we built um, what was at, at the time one of the very first uh, simulator models and, and effectively that measures cash flow movements by month for every month for the for the 50 odd years or 40 years in the, in the original spreadsheet. Now it's indefinite in, in the cloud version that we've built. So we then went about building all that and building those strategies and looking at cash and yield management, looking at the 43 variables. and. And so ultimately, there's around 230,000 calculations that are occurring in those models. In fact, Aaron, the very first version, I remember when, you know, it took us about nine months to build and the great Michael Pope, who, who assisted me in the build, um, you know, the Excel genius that we got into the into the, into the the business, he, um, he and I sat there as we did the first calculation and it took about six minutes <laughs> for the computer to crunch all the numbers and we're sitting up, well, I'm not sure we can sit in front of our customers and say, you know, oh, so what do you do? like? We'll just click that button and we'll let it go off and do its thing, and we'll just have some small talk for the next six minutes. And then, oh, wait a minute, what if we have two kids, or what if we put the kids in private school, and what if I want a holiday here, and what if we want? So it'd be like, you know, those appointments would go for half a day just to get a result. So um, we we obviously iterated on that through two thousand and nine and two thousand and ten, and then put a product to market, and 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 ultimately, you know, that's the foundation. So. I think it's really important for people to understand that at the end of the day, they're the tools. Um, and so for, for yourself and your team and, and for anyone who's advising others, it's just a tool that allows you to so, sort of make the invisible visible. Ultimately, the problem solving is still about connecting the value to what are we trying to achieve here? What big rocks in the jar do we need? What does living your best life look like? Yeah. And some of that is reality checking. You know, some of that's a hard conversation around, well, if you keep spending like you are now, then guess what? You know, you're going to be retiring at 75 or you're going to take a 30 or 40% pay cut when you retire. And, and how do you feel about having that type of lifestyle then compared to the lifestyle you've been having, you know, now? And then so 
ultimately they're, they're the, you know, the exploration and the conversations you have around opportunity and potential. And so off the back of that, yes, we've now, you know, built that into a cloud model. We've built a, an integrated client portal, which we've also made available to the general public to use, which is what you were saying before, Aaron, about um, that being more so that the public can use the Money Smart system. That's free to use. They can use the My Financials, WellSpeed, WellCop. So we've built just a lot of different ways in which you can you can assess your money situation and your net worth and wealth trackers built in there as well. Um, but yeah, where we're going with that is obviously we want to build the best property management um, and sort of money management solution in for those people who have a couple of investment properties. So that's the mission that we're on in terms of that. But if we're coming back to um, the why, um, yes, we need that for our advisory business to do the work that they do. Um, but ultimately, we also want, you know, coming back to that whole idea of, you know, paying it forward, value adding and thinking in abundance is that we want, you know, money smarts will be free forever in terms of for, for that platform and sort of managing your finances, working out your annual budgets and all that thing. That'll be free for as long as we can afford to pay the bills and standing it up and all of that. And at the moment, we can we can comfortably pay those bills. So we'll continue to keep sort of building that up. But, you know, with AI and machine learning and everything that's coming down the track, there's no doubt that, um, you know, in terms of advanced versions of that and potentially also having some type of subscription model in that particular tool is, is a logical next step in terms of, as I said, I like building things. Um, and that's the sort of roadmap in terms of what we're trying to do. But Again, the power of those tools and those simulations and all that are only as good as the problem solvers and the professionals that are in there as well, sort of doing that work. And that's why, you know, you and your team are so successful at what you do um, because you've built up that subject matter knowledge um, and you're really great at sort of getting to the core root of the opportunity or the problem. And then you go about solving that. Oh, well done. It's, it's inspiring to see. I mean, this is what we talk about when you leading the charge at the front of, you know, being captains of industry. It's like, it's going to inspire the next, the next tech tool to come along and, and the beneficiaries that are investors, more Australian families that take control of their money. But you guys have had to kind of lay the, lay the groundwork to, to build it as well. So kudos there. Well done. Speaking of Australian families, and this is, this is a, a topical subject that's coming up, which is the dream of home ownership, whether that's buying more investment properties or the great Australian dream of having your own home. And uh, and you and I were uh, recently at the People Conference and and hearing about that as well. What's your view on the market? Do you feel properties unachievable, unattainable, unaffordable for a lot of Australian families? Or do you kind of go, look, unpopular view, I'm going to go against the grain and say, look, it is accessible, but there's got to be some ways to roll your sleeves up to get into the market as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an excellent question. And, and someone who does value the idea that every Australian should own their own home, um, I do believe that through necessity being the mother of invention, we are going to continue to keep finding ways in which we can find solutions for people getting into the property market. Now, the pathway to that is definitely going to be different based on your circumstances. So if you are less with the bank of mum and dad, that's going to help obviously with deposits. So we know the biggest challenge for most households is going to be the deposit uh, and saving that bulk amount of money. So we're starting to see really good solutions coming in there now in terms of shared equity schemes. And so the government's announcing, the federal government announcing a 2% deposit yeah. um, that will allow them to avoid mortgage insurance and get them into the market as well. So I, I see a lot of that sort of um, invention 
um, starting to come into the market if they're looking to get straight into an owner-occupied property. And I think governments will continue to incentivise that. I think any sensible government that understands that the power of the residential market and in terms of the wealth creation that comes off that and the value in terms of living standards and quality of life for society um, and obviously the taxes and the stamp duty revenues that do provide those services, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, knows that it would be unwise to, to basically destroy um, the, the appreciation or the long-term appreciation of capital growth in that particular property market and, and societies will get judged by that. I think one of the other things that, that is a little bit more difficult um, for those who are seeking to get into the market is this concept of um, this potential belief that, um, you know, uh, living in place or expecting that I will be able to buy in a particular location because maybe I grew up there or, yeah. or something along those sorts of things. So what we do know through um, the creation of cities and larger megacities um, is the, the productive use of that land has different grades and as those productive use of, of that grading goes higher and higher, it's very hard to then obviously justify single-use purpose for a, for a block of land, except for when you obviously put restrictions around that because you're trying to build communities that yeah. maybe not be high density um, or medium density, but you're actually looking to build classic sort of low-rise communities, and that's sort of what happens. So I think, you know, if, if people were sort of saying housing affordability, yes, I do agree that it's still challenging. Um, I do agree that you you also have a lot longer to worry about it because, you, you know, compared to my father's generation who's, you know, uh, were, were sort of set to work to the age of 60 and then they pretty much died one or two years after that, then my generation who are set to live into our 70s and then, you know, the, my kids' generation who are set to live beyond their 90s and and so forth um, with all this gene therapy stuff that's going on. So so I, I feel like it's just about um, expectations and making sure people understand that, yes, um, you know, housing can be affordable, but it's about the expectations you have about where you want to live and, and that intention to, to deserve or feel entitled maybe that, that you know, what, why can't I buy in Middle Park or why can't I buy in you know, um, Mills, Milson's Point or something along those lines, right? In term, and I and I struggle with reconciling their argument on that on that side. But I appreciate the wider that people have to go. You know, potentially less employment opportunities or the commute time and the quality of life is um, is certainly sacrificed. But but that's a choice. I mean, ultimately, you know, the same sort of choice happened when societies have evolved over time and these cities have grown over time. People have dispersed themselves wider. They've relocated to a more accommodating city for their needs and i think you know those sort of cities will evolve and people still have that choice so i, I can't just sit back and say right stop everything uh no more appreciation for all those people that are in the market because we need everyone else to catch up that's not how you know a democracy or a capitalist system works and you know a capitalist system is not perfect we we get it um but it's certainly um you know if i, if I have a choice between capitalism and socialism I know, I know which one I'd want in terms of increasing the bulk of the living standards for most. And, and when you grow an economy large enough, the other big important thing, that's actually when you do provide enough income off that economy for governments to also provide those services needed for those most vulnerable in our community. So mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a passionate person about what the government needs to do around 
growing the economy and continuing to focus. If they did that work really well, all of the other services such as health and education and all that, there's enough money in the system to be able to do that. But when they start tinkering around that and start putting throttles on the economy, ultimately it just means they have to keep borrowing more and more debt and then we're, we're basically wasting that money on interest costs and, and I just don't get that. Yeah, yeah. Do you fear for generation renters, for example, that they get stuck in the, on the rental trap and getting into the market gets harder as time goes on? Um, there's no doubt that that I'm sure if I sat down with 100 renters that there would be some more difficult cases um, to solve mm. in terms of their situation. So especially if they've got a health issue, um, if they're a single person, you know, the, the battles of entry become harder but not impossible and, and that's sort of that's that sort of abundant mindset and that positive thinking message. Um, if I could work with an individual or a couple in their, you know, late teens, early 20s and I could get them gainfully employed, I could make sure they've got a good education to get them into a workforce, I'm almost certain that um, through the sequencing of the ideas that I would have for them, um, that they would be in a position where one day they'll be homeowners and then one day they would also start a family. Um, now, the the adjustment of those expectations do come on to, well, how much money have I got to work with and ultimately where does that live? But that I have not lost that uh, dream or belief that that's not possible for every Australian household. It sits actually up in our, in the office that I, I you know, the reason I started this business is I believe everyone has a chance to achieve financial independence and financial freedom. And no one can convince me otherwise of that, other than potentially these, you know, riskier outlier cases where they may be, you know, mentally um, or physically disabled and not able to necessarily look after themselves. So I realise that there is a small, you know, minority group there and we need to do everything possible um, to help them live a dignified life. But in terms of what, what I normally see is mistakes. I normally see from a prevention versus a cure point of view, I normally see, um, well, we got pregnant. Oh, and, you know, and then so I couldn't then study and I, and, I, and I couldn't educate myself. And so most of those things I would say that through better planning and through better decision making, um, usually that's the piece that I want to go after. So part of my longer term mission is making sure that, you know, platforms like more and, and sort of financial tools and instruments that will allow people to understand the consequences of potentially going in in a reverse order. Like if you're single and you have a child, your chances of actually getting anywhere near owning a property become, becomes much more difficult for you. And so I don't want that to be the case. So I want people to think um, carefully about the decisions that they make and the order in which they make those decisions rather than just expecting, well, why can't, you know, why should you stop me or, you know, um, or, or make that decision. If you're going to trade off the idea that, that you know, or, or you believe that you should be entitled to a home as well as having, having kids whenever you want to have them, well, ultimately, what does that say for all of those people who worked hard, got the education, got their jobs in order, and then ultimately did it the right way? Well, they're the ones who are going to have to be paying higher taxes and higher fees and services to provide, you know, those solutions. So I worry about, you know, that that middle class welfare and, you know, what that message that that sends um, to the Australian people and the Australian community. I, I, I won the lotto. I, I, I got born in Australia. And so yeah. all of a sudden now, I'm, you know, 
because I'm here, I expect you to actually look after me. And, you know, so I should be getting a unemployment payment. I should be getting, you know, a, a family benefits payment. I should be getting all of these services. But what contribution have I made? And so I, I do believe that, you know, we should always, you know, work for, for the rewards that we get. And then ultimately when we're in a position like that that allows us to then, you know, sort of pay it forward and, and be more, you know, gratifying in terms of the way in which we can help others. But I, I do worry about some of the, 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 the trend of the psychology of, of the, the citizens in some parts and sections of our community in terms of that story. Uh, well said. Well said. Thank you very much. Your mantra that you mentioned before, I love what you're, I love what you're putting out there and it's very similar to kind of what I'll say, which is, you know, the market rewards action takers and decision makers. And it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a hard one because I guess when you're at the, at the start of your journey, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And as time goes on, talk about scar tissue or making mistakes or opportunity cost or other people now are doing better than you uh, and, and the psychology can change. So take us through as people come on that journey, they're starting out a little bit fearful. They start to build up some confidence, for example. Now they've got a little bit more to lose. And I think you said even at the start, it's about making less bad decisions than sometimes it's about making more good decisions as well. So how do we temper that type of growth and when people are looking to scale up their portfolio that they don't become overconfident as well. Yeah, I know. I wish I had all the answers in this space because <laughs> then I wouldn't have to do the podcast every week. Uh, I mean, I love what I do, but yeah. look, that, that's that classic case of, you know, don't don't touch the pot um, because you'll burn yourself. But there are, there are a group of people that can't be told and will ultimately touch that pot. So I'm trying to convince them before they go near the pot to just start thinking more broadly and long term about what they're what they're trying to achieve and and avoid the sort of social media which you know I call I call it social envy right so mm. the more that people early on in their lives get attached to that social envy of what other people are doing and and what they're achieving I mean I can tell you countless stories of of people who look like they're super successful and they're driving around in nice cars and you know, and so their shop front looks really terrific, but behind that, you know, their finances are in disarray. They've got yeah. bad debts. There, you know, so so our message is really simple around building money habits and behaviours that will reward you over the medium to longer term. And and I get that that's hard for people who may have grown up comfortable and and not have to worry about money. And and a lot of people, you know, they don't worry about money. They they literally go through life in this sort of um, you know, relaxed haze about, oh, you know, that that sort of stuff will just take care of itself. And, you know, I was always someone who was worried or anxious about money in my early years. Mm. And so I've worked really hard on trying to change those money behaviours and, and you know, sort of making sure that, you know, if I had said, well, yeah, I've worked for this and, and I did plan to spend this, that, that it's actually okay to spend that money because it's not necessarily impacting the bigger, the bigger story. Now, we also know that there are going to be surprises, uh, bumps on the road, road shocks and so forth. And, you know, I, I, in my own sort of family with my brother and at the loss of his fiance, um, at the age of, of 37, I think it was, um, you know, that, that's a shock that you can never plan for. And so ultimately, you know, but then watching the responses of our network of friends around that sort of some of them saying, well, that's it. I'm living for today. I'm not planning for tomorrow. And, and, you know, they're going to go and live for the next 50 to 60 years and, and you know, they're going to struggle in terms of what sort of wealth base they've got behind them. So I just think, you know, I, I think long and hard about this idea that um, if you don't believe it's possible, 
There's evidence all around you of people who have done it. Um, they've treaded that pathway for you. And so we've just got to continually keep working on some of those behaviours and, and mindsets. And that's why, you know, we created the Wellspeed um, gauge. Um, the Wellspeed gauge, you put all your financial information in and it tells you what you're earning per hour, um, you know, for 24 hour, 24 seven clock. And then you break that into, you know, exertion income. So we call it working income speed and passive income speed. And then you can see your spending speeds and you can see all these different gauges, right? Now, the idea with that is to just basically give you your dashboard right in front of you. The, the most most of the problems with budgets is that you're sort of you're looking forward, look, you know, with the you know driving forward, with looking at the rear vision mirror in terms of what's happening. The the idea and the concept of well speeds and well clocks is this: well, I am driving forward, and so how can I make that gauge? In other words, you go, I'm in my wealth creation car. Well, yeah. it's it's logical that my wealth speed's got to go quicker, doesn't it? So where can I find opportunities to trap money? And then put that to work and and the problem you know that even james clear and all that talk about is that with the long-term habits and you, you don't see a lot of that improvement early so people go well this isn't working for me so you know the classic part of that is to say well every time you go in and update your numbers and your financials it'll actually give you a percentage gain so even though i might say it's seven dollars and 22 cents well you might just picked up a four percent gain now, 4% is meaningful if you can continue, continue to keep doing that every month, you know, or every year. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start thinking about your money and you, and your whole, your, your life in hourly terms. And you can then start to say, well, actually, it's not too bad. I just ate lunch today. And, you know, that lunch cost me $13.50 for my salad roll and my potato cake. And then ultimately it's like, but, but I know my, my, you know, my, well speed is growing at, and I'll just make up a number here, but $47. So even though I took half an hour for lunch, I'm actually making money whilst I'm having lunch. And so it's it's about training that sort of psychology in terms of, you know, is my money working hard for me or not? And then what the big story here is, what we've got to do is basically take your exertion income, so your working income, and we've got to replace it with passive income. And that requires investment, because if we don't do that, you're not going to retire because there won't be enough money there for you to retire on. So they're the sort of little tricks and and sort of instruments we've been building in these next generation gauges to try and help change that psychology and, and coming back to what you were saying before about how do you implement that? Well, first of all, you've got you to be problem aware. And if most people don't even want to be problem aware, well, it's very hard that we're going to be able to help them. But the ones who do want to be problem aware, and this shows up also in the research when you look at aspiring people, a lot of aspiring people who build goal habits and behaviours and they check in, they, they naturally want to check in on their progress, so they look at their finances. So they're the easy people to help for. That 25% of the population, you've already got them. You had them at a hello. Um, it's it's that next 25 and that 25% after that that I'm going after to try and make sure that there's an opportunity for them to sort of say, you know, we've got a real shot at this, but if we don't do it early, then we're going to be chasing our tail doing it later. Love it. Oh, great sentiment. Thanks very much. The The last question I had for you was around PIPA. Now, for some people, they may be very aware what the PIPA proposition is. You're, you're very fortunate to be the chair of PIPA for some time. So for the uninitiated, take us through what, what did PIPA stand for and, and where is it currently at in terms of its its uh, level of growth and, and market awareness? Yeah, so um, the, the the backstory that, that sort of is my narration to where I got to and how I discovered uh, PIPA is this. 
I, you know, I wanted to be a property investment advisor. I didn't know, you know, whether that was a thing at the time. And I know that there was, you know, sales agents masquerading as property investment advisors. I, I knew that for a fact, you know, in terms of the Spruker side. And so I looked for a course to, you know, basically, and I just stumbled across what was called QPIA, Qualified Property Investment Advisor, and it was run by Deakin Prime, which is part of Deakin University. So I started doing night school and, and part-time study. And so over the course of two and a half years, I completed the modules of that and got my got my QPIA qualification um, to be a, a qualified property investment advisor. Um, in addition to that, I you know met Margaret Lomas, who at the time was on the board um, and was the chair. Um, she invited me to um, to speak at an event. Um, you know, we got to know each other, and then she invited me onto the board. And then ultimately, I you know I took the chairmanship from her um, and uh, and sort of ran that I think for about four or five years um, at that time. And and so then Peter Galisos took over, and then obviously we've got the wonderful Nicola McDougall who's who's heading that up. Now the big thing that attracted me to Pippa um, is their code of conduct. And the idea that, you know, in, in the property market space, there's a lot of money to be made. There's lots of commissions, kickbacks, soft dollars and referrals. Well, under the code of conduct, um, if you want to be a PIPA member, you've got to abide by that code. And that is that if you are receiving a commission, and again, we don't, but if you are, you need to fully disclose that you're receiving commission from the developer um, or from a, an agency or anyone who's in that chain of sale that's occurring. And so that just, to me, meant that we can put a little bit of a professional um, association together and build on that professional association to help protect consumers um, in terms of what is yeah, a marketplace where there's some great operators such as yourself who operate in that space as specialists across all the ecosystem from mortgage broking through to property investment advisory to taxation, financial planning, buyers, agents, et cetera. And so, you know, we've formed that association for the people operating in the industry. And so you can you can be safe to know that they're operating under that code of conduct. And if they don't, obviously they'll be expelled and there'll be other consequences associated with that. But we do know that there's obviously a bigger, wider community out there because property investment isn't regulated. Right. And so there are plenty of people who can put on a, a shirt and basically advocate to buy this property in this new estate um, and earn $50,000 in the process. Mm. What are some of the red flags? So if someone's listening going, how do I maybe identify a couple of red flags, maybe see a couple come across your desk, um, you know, to your trained eye, probably seeing the good, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. What does that look like? Well, well, ultimately the first one is how are you paid? You yeah. know, so so if, if their service offering is for free, someone's ultimately paying. So in, in terms of, um, you know, if you're asking that question and you're sitting down thinking you're talking to a buyer's agent and saying they're a free service, well, that's more than likely that they're a, a property marketer associated with an agency that might be selling a, a complex or something off the plan. So usually that's the first thing I do. Um, if they are a fee-for-service but they also provide a professional or, or they provide a recommendation to go and work with somebody else, one of the other questions I'd have for them is, do you get paid by, you know, by introducing us to your property manager or to your accountant or to your mortgage broker? So there are relationships out there and, and these are perfectly legal relationships, but a, uh, you know, a selling agent um, at an open home could, you know, pass out a business card for a mortgage broker as an example. And 
And if there's a payment, like if that client then gets the mortgage through that broker, then ultimately, you know, there's a payment that might be exchanged between that uh, a real estate agent and that mortgage broker. So as long as all of those are, um, you know, basically disclosed and the customer's looking at that disclosure document that says, oh, you know, that, that real estate agent just got $600 or in some cases thousands of dollars when it comes to, you know, people selling off the plan or house and land packages and the like, then you know that somewhere in that equation, a payment, you know, is being added to the, the fulfillment service. And, and we know that, you know, some, some of these marketers will tell you, well, we, you know, it saves hundreds of thousands of dollars on other marketing costs. So we're just basically saving those, but that's, that's ultimately what the consumer needs to make a judgment call on in terms of, do they feel like they've got value in that conversation and were they happy? for those referral fees to be paid and and ultimately make that informed decision for themselves. Beautiful. Thank you very much. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you you were heading that up and you kind of put those plans in place as well where the beneficiaries are as an industry, raising the bar, raising the standard, for example. Most importantly for a client and a borrower, it's transparency and also yeah. gives more trust right. in industries as well, which I think it's fantastic outcome as well. So well done. Thank you. Beautiful, Ben. You've been super generous with your knowledge and your time. I want to say thank you very much on behalf of our listeners. And uh, I know our clients will, will, will get a blast out of hearing this as well. So if you want more information, you want to hear from the team at Empower Wealth, jump on, check out the property couch, for example. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you reckon we've got a couple of books that we can give away to a listener? Is that oh, 100%. Yeah, we'll give, why don't we give five property couch books away? Sorry, what are they called? Armchair guided property invested books and five of them make money simple again books as well. Love your generosity, mate. Thank you very much. Uh, so if you're listening and you want a copy of the book, drop our team an email uh, and we'll get details uh, for our contact or drop us a DM as well. And if you want to absorb more knowledge out of the team at Empower Wealth and Property Catch, then check them out on their socials as well. Because I'm telling you right now, that's where I've been fed a lot of information as well. And it's high caliber. Uh, it's great quality. And it's guys that are living, breathing and sleeping it themselves as well. So Ben, thank you very much. Love your work and look forward to talking to you very soon. Thanks very much, Aaron. Thanks for the opportunity to chat. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. That's a wrap for another episode of the Australian Property Investment Podcast. If you loved it, give us a thumbs up. Better yet, leave us a review and tell a friend as well. Thank you very much.